If you have your copy of Scripture in Hebrews chapter 7 this morning, Hebrews chapter 7, I really feel like church is lopsided. Just, I'm just saying. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 20 through 28 this morning. It's what we're going to look at. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning, Hebrews chapter 7. And it was, and it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. And it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weaknesses as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This message is our high priest saves to the uttermost. If you've ever watched an infomercial, you know these words very well. They give you All of the information about their product, they give you what is called the hook, which is something that is uh, unbelievable about their product. You just can't believe that what they are saying is actually true. And then they tell you, wait, there's more. And the deal becomes amazing. And finally, they utter these words just in case you're on the fence about buying the product. They say there is a money back guarantee. And what this does is it gives you the confidence to say, hey, if this product doesn't work, I can always get my money back. What a deal. And so we buy it. In fact, the more money we're going to spend on something, the more we want to know about the guarantee that it has. We want to make sure that what we are buying is actually going to do what it is supposed to do. But are there any guarantees in life? There are two great issues that we are faced with in life. The first is what do we do with our sin? What do we do with our sin? Or we could even say, what do we do with our guilt? Everyone has guilt. Even people that claim to be atheists experience guilt. What do we do with it? Things we've done to others out of anger or greed produce guilt. How do we deal with sins that are done to us and sins done by us? And well, what we often do is we deal with sin... By not calling sin, 
sin. In fact, we reclassify it. We call it something else. We um, maybe call it dysfunctional. And we do that as a society. Instead of saying someone has transgressed a divine moral law, instead we say they are dysfunctional. We do this with murderers, molesters, adulterers, gossips. It doesn't matter what the sin is. We excuse it. We say, well, they're dysfunctional. And we try, we try to get into the mind of someone who would make an unfortunate but understandable choice. And so when someone goes into a school and murders 17 people or someone goes into church and kills men, women, and children, we try to, we try to blame guns or we try to blame it on something else and say that something else is a problem. And that is our, our second great issue that we're faced with. Not only the fact that what do we do with our sin and what do we do with our guilt, but the second issue is that we blame our behavior on external forces. So what do we do? When issues arise, we blame our childhood. We hear things like, well, that they had a bad upbringing. Or we blame it on the environment that we are in, whether it be work, school, or where we live. And so what must be done? Well, we need to rehabilitate that person. We need to change their situation. So instead of redemption, instead of forgiveness as a society, we assign blame. And so the answer becomes therapy or a change of their environment and this is an absolute failure to deal with the reality of evil in our world today denial and therapy does nothing with the guilt that people have in their life it does nothing with the guilt of our sin because it doesn't recognize sin as sin and it has not and will never bring peace to an individual or a nation When we think about sin, we think of what we have done in the past. We think of sin that we have committed. But when we think about blaming our behavior or external forces, that deals with the heart. It deals with the now and in the future. You see, this life is brief and it's uncertain, but eternity is forever. And if the problem is that we are corrupt inwardly, if that is really the issue, then what will we do? Sin is merely the outward reality of an inward problem. We are constantly trying to deal with that inward problem in our lives today, and we make changes in our life as we try to deal with it. And so we go on diets and we lose weight because the reason we overeat is because we are de- we were deprived as a child maybe of certain foods, and so we blame it on that. Or we work our on our lifestyle choices and we buy ourselves nicer things to make us feel better about ourselves because we never really had anything nice growing up as a child. Or we work hard on our resume to land that killer job because we know that the solution is to have a great job and be successful because we never saw success in our family and I'm going to be the first one to have success and to have the money. But here's the thing, when it comes to our heart, when it comes to who we really are, which is our attitudes and our characters and our affections in life, change is not easy. In fact, change when it comes to our heart is beyond our grasp. So we can buy 
a nice car. We can own a nice house. And we can maintain our nice lifestyle. We can dress for success. We can learn life's lessons. And we can grow older. And really, nothing has changed. Because we're the same person. You know why that is? Because substantial and lasting change of our heart will never be achieved within ourselves. Never. Substantial and lasting change in your heart can never, ever be achieved by yourself. You don't have the power to do it. And so that's the backdrop of our passage this morning. The author of Hebrews is continuing his argument that Jesus is our high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, making him far superior to the Levitical priests. He is superior because God's oath, we see that in verses 20 through 22, because Jesus is superior, uh, Jesus is superior because of his preeminence, verses 23 through 25. Jesus is superior because of his perfection, verses 26 through 28. And the overall message is that because Jesus is our perfect high priest, he saves to the other most. And that is the solution to the inner internal problem we all have. Jesus deals without well, with our outward sin and our inward condition. And what it says is that Jesus saves to the other most. It's not that Jesus gives some advice or He gives some good tips on how to live your life or how to live a better life. We need salvation because we are lost. We have an inward problem that manifests itself in outward sin. And we're, we're in immediate danger of perishing and we, we can't save ourselves. And without the intervention of Christ, we will never survive. And that is the point. We all need saving. The author wants us and his audience to see the superiority of Jesus as our high priest. He does not want the reader to go back to Judaism. So he's showing how Jesus is superior to the Levitical priesthood and that, and that old sacrificial system. And we too are tempted not to go back to Judaism, but we are tempted to turn from Christ in our life when we face trials and when we face suffering and when we face disappointments and when we face hardships. And the solution is not to turn away from Christ, but the solution is to know Christ even more. And we often turn to psychology and it gives us ways of coping and, and it tells you that here's a coping mechanism or tries to help you deal with your, your sin in a different way. But the only solution is Christ. Or we pursue material pleasure of the world to make us feel better. But the only solution is Jesus Christ. What we need is the supremacy of Christ as our perfect high priest who saves to the uttermost. And so, with that said, we see first that Jesus is a superior high priest because of God's divine oath. Jesus is a superior high priest because of God's divine oath. The author draws our attention to the point that Jesus became our high priest by a divine oath. This is a contrast to the Levitical priesthood because priests and Levitical priesthood obtained their position not by a divine oath, but because of divine instruction given to Moses in Exodus chapter 28. God never swore to any priest that his priesthood would be forever. However, he did swear to his son that he would be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now we saw something similar back in Hebrews chapter 6. 
when we were studying that passage and God's promise to Abraham, he swore by himself to make the promise that much more secure. And as we said then, God's word is enough, but he added an oath not for his benefit, as we said then, but it was for our benefit that we would understand the unchanging nature of God. It was double assurance to us of the eternality of Jesus Christ's priesthood. William Barclay says this, whatever God confirms by an oath becomes something so utterly unchangeable that it is woven into the very fiber of the universe and must remain forever. The result of this oath is seen in verse 22. It says that this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Now in the Greek, that, that very, the very last word of verse 22 is actually Jesus, it's, it's switched around in the Greek, and if we read that in the Greek, the very last word of that verse would be the name Jesus. It is that way in the Greek to put emphasis on Jesus. Jesus means Yahweh saves. Now, interestingly enough, this is also the only time in the entire New Testament that the word guarantor is used, which is a person of sufficient means who offers his belongings, freedom, or often their life as an assurance that another person will meet certain specifications or requirements, especially in a financial context of debt repayment. What is it saying? We had a debt that we could not pay. That's what it's saying. There used to be a song that talked about we had a debt that we could not pay. Jesus had a debt that He did not owe. Jesus offered Himself on a cross for our sins as a guarantor, as the payment of the debt that we could not pay for a better covenant. Jesus did this for us as our high priest. And He will do anything consistent with His nature for us. I like what John MacArthur says when he says this. All of God's promises in the new covenant are guaranteed to us by Jesus Himself. He guarantees to pay all the debts that our sins have incurred or ever will incur against us. Jesus is a superior high priest, first of all, because of God's divine oath. Secondly, Jesus is superior because of His permanence. Because of His permanence. Look at verse 24. It says, But He holds His priesthood permanently. Permanently. He's not like the previous priests. His priesthood is forever. It never ends. And it saves. And as a result, there's a ministry of intercession for those who draw near to God through Christ. If we were to look at the first priest, we would notice the impermanence of the priesthood. Aaron, who was the very first priest, was succeeded by his son, Eleazar, who was succeeded by his son, Phineas. And, and the concluding comment of every priest was inevitably this, and he died. Because you just, that's what priests did. They died. But the author of Hebrews asserts, Jesus lives. And His priesthood is permanent. Jesus' priesthood never changes. He will never need another priest. We don't need another priest. No one else comes in. Jesus was it. He was the final priest. He is the priest forever and ever. Now, 
if we want to think about this in modern day terms, we could think of this kind of in the form of pastors, right? Pastors come and go. They don't stick around. In fact, in 1950, Lester Lees was called as a first pastor of First Baptist Church. In 1952, there was a new pastor. In 1958, that pastor resigned and there was another pastor. By 1968, there was another pastor. And by 1981, another one. In 1985, he resigned. In 1986, another pastor was hired. And in 1990, he resigned. In 1991, there was a new pastor. In 1997, he resigned. I mean, you get the picture, right? I mean, five or six years or four years or whatever, and, and new pastors were gone. The pastor does not represent you before God. I don't represent you before God. You go to God through Jesus Christ, and I proclaim and explain God's Word to you. In June, by God's grace, I will have been your pastor for five years. And I pray daily that God will use me to equip you and encourage you. But don't look to me, look to Christ. Be dependent on Him, because I could be gone tomorrow. I don't have any plans on like standing up here and resigning or anything. But that could happen. I could be God could call me home tomorrow. And I'd be gone. Because I'm not permanent. Jesus is. Now I have to be careful because there's so much contained in verse 25 that I could preach an entire sermon over that one verse. But if we look closely at it, we notice that it tells us First, that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost, that he always makes intercession, and that this intercession is for those who draw near to God through Jesus Christ. Now look closely at that verse, at verse 25, and when it says, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, or since he always lives to make intercession for them. He saves to the uttermost because he always lives to make intercession for us. Our future salvation does not hinge on us. It hinges on Christ's eternal intercession for us. Now I want to break this verse down the best I can before we move on because there's so much here. First of all, Jesus is able to save. The angel of the Lord promised Joseph in Matthew chapter 1 verse 21 he will save his people from their sins. Not might save, not probably will save, but He will save. Not make salvation possible, but He will save His people, will save His people from their sins. Many Christians read that verse and they read it like this. Jesus will do all He can to save His people from their sins, but He will not violate the free will of man in order to do it. So, that's not what the verse says. It says He will save His people from their sins. He doesn't say it's up to man. He doesn't say I won't violate the free will of man. And it's up to them. And if they don't choose choose me. Then I can't save them. That's not what it says. This is not what the verse says. It. God, God is not up in heaven. Wishing for people. That they would just believe in him. So he could save them. God's not there ringing his hand. Boy I sure wish that person would, would believe in me. So I could save them. Poor God. He doesn't have the power to save anyone. You see how ridiculous that sounds? Is God sovereign over all things or is He not? Is God the creator of the world or is He not? Do we depend on God for everything in this life or do we not? It's not poor God. He can't do what He wants to do. God can do whatever He wants to do. He doesn't have His hands tied by the free will of people. 
Then when someone does get saved, the people with this view that think God's hands are tied by free will are forced to say that it was a cooperative effort between God and man. God was cooperating with man and it was an effort together. God did his part, now man must do their part and exercise their free will to believe in Jesus Christ. We have a fancy theological term for that. It's called synergism. This is the view of the Roman Catholic Church, and it's been the view that has crept into many churches, including some of the Baptist churches around the nation. This, however, was not the view of the Reformers. They biblically and correctly taught that because of the fall of mankind into sin, there is no one who understands, and there is no one who seeks after God. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 makes it abundantly clear. They understood and taught that we are born dead in our sinful condition. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 teaches us that. Because we are dead in our sins and are blinded by the God of this world so that we may not see the light of the gospel. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 4 teaches that. We cannot cooperate with God in our salvation. How can a dead man do anything? When was the last time you saw a dead man do something? They just lie there dead. Because they're dead. When you're dead, you can't resurrect yourself. Try, try going up to a corpse someday and say, raise yourself from the dead and see if it happens. It's not going to happen. If you are blind, you can't make yourself see again. It's not that we are drowning in an ocean. We are dead. We are bloated in the bottom of the sea in our fallen sinful condition. We have no desire to be saved at all. Why? Because we love darkness more than light because our deeds are evil. John chapter 3 verse 19 tells us that. We are hopeless and we are helpless as sinners. We can't help ourselves. There's nothing we can possibly do to earn our salvation. It is not a pretty picture. We fulfill our own desires and, and our own will. As we walk in ignorance because of the hardness of our heart, we are callous to sin and we practice every kind of impurity to gratify our flesh. Ephesians chapter 4 verses 18 and 19. And when we look around and we say, Boy, the world is evil. We are correct. But so are we. I'm not shocked when I see evil. You know why? Because they're only acting on their natural, sinful inclination. When someone shoots up a school, they are acting on their natural, sinful inclination because we are all evil apart from Jesus Christ. That's who we are. It's not a pretty picture. That's who we are before salvation. We are in a desperate situation. How can we be saved? Hebrews says, Jesus is able to save. But what are we being saved from? And this is crucial, church. I, I know this message is going deeper into the doctrine of salvation than perhaps we want to go. But, but what is it that we're being saved from? Some people will say, well, we're being saved from hell. Or that we're being saved from some sort of punishment. Some people even say, well, we're being saved from ourselves. Listen, we need to be very clear. And clear with unbelievers that we are being saved from the wrath of God. 
We're being saved from God's wrath. God's wrath will be poured out on all unbelievers. If Christ intercedes forever with God, then the implication is that we are being saved from God's wrath. Romans 18. For the wrath of God revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Christ is continually putting Himself between the Father and us as a shield against the wrath of God. We'll see this later in Hebrews chapter 10. You see the major issue in our world today is not race relations. It's not broken marriages. It's not children that do not listen. It's not financial problems. It's not our health. It's not our culture. The main problem with the world today is the same for every single person. And that is this. How can we possibly be reconciled to God and escape His wrath? That's the main problem for everyone in the world. And the biblical answer is this. Jesus saves. Jesus, as our high priest, is God's way to be made right with God, to appease His wrath. There's only one hope for us, and that is Jesus Christ. This does not mean that the Father is begrudgingly placated by the Son. While it is true that we are worthy of God's wrath, it is also true that Jesus fulfills the office to which the Father has appointed Him to fulfill. We are saved based on the Son and what the Son does. Because the Son does the will of the Father for us, securing the way for our reconciliation as God's children. The problem is not that we need to get a rope thrown to us because we're drowning. The problem is that we are already drowned. We are dead and bloated at the bottom of the sea. And Jesus dives into the sea and dives down to us and He breathes new life into us. And we are saved. He takes His life and breathes it into us. Us. Jesus saves. But not only that, it says that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost. I don't know what you think of when you hear that word, uttermost, but in the Greek it means holy to a complete degree or to the full entire extent. Here's the idea we are saved the moment we trust Christ, but there's also a present and future tense to our salvation. We are being saved. Present tense, we are being saved. And one day, we will be saved in a total and final sense. The words here allow for no possibility of us to supplement our salvation by doing good. Salvation is a complete work of Christ from beginning to end. That is the beauty of salvation. Whoever we are, whatever we've done, no matter our sins, whether it be great or small, whether it's murder, Infidelity, betrayal, lying, jealousy, adultery, gossip, perversion. It doesn't matter. Christ saves to the uttermost. This is the power of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. But also the idea of Jesus is able to save to the uttermost is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. What God begins at the moment of salvation, He promises that He will complete. It is not a matter of if He will bring it to completion. It's guaranteed to be brought to completion. It will be completed. 
Jesus said, His will is to do the will of the Father. And that all that the Father has given to Him, He will not lose. He will not lose. John chapter 6, verse 39. Jesus is able to save to the uttermost. The Father has given a people to His Son. And Jesus will not lose any of them. Will they doubt? Sure. Will they have fear? Yes. Will they have moments of weakness and even denials? You mean like Peter? Yep. But Jesus saves to the uttermost. And He will lose none of them. But not only that, not only do we see that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost, but we see that Jesus makes total intercession for us. Intercession is to make a petition. Petition someone in authority or on behalf of someone else. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, sits at the right hand of the Father. He is equal to the Father in deity, but as the Son, He submits to the Father's will. Some people might as well... uh, or some people will say, well, how does Jesus pray? Or what does He say when He prays? Well, if you want to know, I'd encourage you to read John chapter 17 for some insight. The whole chapter of John chapter 17 is a prayer of Jesus. It is known as a high priestly prayer. Furthermore, He told Peter that He prayed for him that his faith would not fail. But look what this verse says. It says, He always lives to make intercession." He always lives to make intercession. Have you ever grown tired of praying? That's not a quick trick question. I have. There are times I am physically and mentally weak. And sometimes that may dictate my intercession. Sometimes while praying, I grow tired. Sometimes my mind wanders. Sometimes I feel the Spirit prodding me to pray and I don't. Sometimes, I know you may find this hard to believe, but I have fallen asleep while praying. Don't act like you're all spiritual and like you've never done that. But not Jesus, right? Jesus lives, it says He lives to make intercession. He appears for us in God's presence. In Romans chapter 8, verse 38, Paul asks, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Jesus has this unbroken contact with the Father and He intercedes day by day, night by day by night, hour by hour, month by month, year by year, Christ prays for us. He takes our feeble, frail, and sick prayers and He presents them to the Father. Every prayer hits its mark as He he sits at the right hand of the Father. Now here's the thing. Right now, get this, right now, Jesus is praying for you. I mean, if that doesn't fire you up, I don't know what will. Right now, every moment of every day, 
Every hour, every minute, Jesus is interceding for you. Jesus makes total intercession for us. Jesus is a superior high priest because of God's divine oath, because of his permanence. And now let's see this. Jesus is superior because of his perfection. If we look at verse 28, especially the last part, it tells us that God appoints a son as high priest who has been made perfect forever. This is not saying that Jesus uh, first became perfect and then he became the high priest. But the idea is that Jesus' nature was perfect from the beginning and he came to earth as the perfect high priest. His life on earth was an exhibition of the moral perfection he always possessed. When it says made perfect, this is a direct reference to his suffering which is developed, uh, which developed in, in him the ability to understand our needs as our perfect Savior. And his eternal perfection allowed him to meet the needs of a sinful and rebellious human beings. I want to look at two specific ways that Jesus is superior because of his perfection. First of all, he's perfect in his person. It says in verse 26 that it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. The idea is that Jesus was perfectly fitted to be our high priest. He is appropriate in every way to be the Savior of humanity. I love what John Owen says when he says this, Unholy sinners stand in need of a holy priest and a holy sacrifice. What we do not have in ourselves, we must have in Him, or we will not be accepted by the holy God who has such pure eyes that He cannot look on sin. Such a high priest is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, as perfect in his person, offers himself as our substitute. Now, in the verse, or in this verse, there are five terms that emphasize the perfection of Jesus. I don't want to briefly look at them. First, it states that he is holy. This means that he is set apart unto God and is a focus of the character of Jesus Christ, meaning that he is without any sin. There's no sin in Jesus. Not even in thought, instead of being like us, conceived in sin, he is separated from sin and evil, from all sinful behavior. Jesus Christ is perfectly and eternally set apart from sin. And is absolutely holy and will never see corruption. Secondly, it says that he is innocent. This means he was free from everything that was evil and harmful, not only in his actions, but even in his motivations. This is often looked at in how Jesus related to others. He was innocent. Meaning that he walked this earth and he did not tempt, injure, or contaminate others. Unlike us, Jesus was the only one who truly loved his neighbor as himself. He didn't live for self, but he lived for others. He did not repay evil for evil. When treated poorly, he did not seek revenge. He was the innocent lamb in the midst of wolves. We could even say that Jesus Christ was so good that there was nothing but good in him. Thirdly, it says that he was unstained. He not only entered the world holy and innocent, but he was holy and innocent when he left the world. His whole life, he was in the world under the curse of sin and mingled with sinners, yet he remained unstained. He was never infected by the evil that surrounded him. And though the priests had to go through their ceremonial ritual that would have them ceremonially unstained, it was not so with Jesus Christ. Even after his temptation in the desert for 40 days, he rose victorious, just as spotless as the day he entered in. 
there was absolutely nothing in his life that would keep him from entering the presence of God the Father. Fourthly, he was separated from sinners, it says. Now, this does not mean that Jesus was removed from contact with sinners, as we clearly see that not to be the case in the New Testament. Jesus didn't live in a monastery. In fact, Jesus was the friend of sinners. But he kept himself separate and undefiled from sin. The Levitical priests had to keep themselves separated from anyone who would defile them ritually. But Jesus did not have to worry about that because their defilement had no effect on Jesus. He touched lepers. He was touched by the unclean. And never was he defiled. Instead, Jesus was so pure that when he came in contact with impurity, they received his life-giving power. Jesus epitomized being in the world, but not of the world. And though he lived among sinners, he was infinitely apart from them in his nature and in his character and in his conduct. Fifthly, he was exalted above the heavens. This is a reference to the present state of our high priest. It is the truth of Jesus Christ's resurrection, ascension, and glorification. And it is a portrayal of his supreme perfection. The point isn't that Jesus elevated to someplace higher than heaven, but that he is higher than every heavenly being who is seated at the right hand of God the Father with power and authority forever. And we are reminded that Jesus is in heaven as a person on our behalf. What great news. The person of Jesus Christ is made higher than the heavens in a perfect and absolute sense. He sits as a as a perfect high priest before the throne of God forever and ever on our behalf, making intercession for us. He is perfect in his person. So we see that Jesus is perfect in his person. Now let's see that he's perfect in his work. The human priest, because of their sin, had to repeatedly offer sacrifices. Verse 27 makes it clear. But Christ didn't. He offered sacrifice one time. Jesus was and is infinite, whereas human priests were finite. And so the way it worked was once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would make the sacrifice for sins of the people. The high priest would enter the holiest place of all and sprinkle the blood of the Lamb on the mercy seat in the Ark of the Covenant. The one day a year was the only day that the high priest was able to enter the most holy place because it was where the presence of God dwelt. And so just imagine one day a year was the only time where you could enter the presence of God and even then you could not personally enter the presence of God, but you had to go through the high priest. The point of this is drawing our attention to the work of the high priest because he was a a mere man who was imperfect and he had to offer sacrifice not only for the people but for himself before he could offer the sacrifice for the people. However, here's the contrast. Jesus is perfect. He's the perfect high priest who offers the perfect sacrifice. What is the sacrifice that Jesus offers? Is it a lamb? Is it a dove? Is it a goat? What is it? Himself. He was sinless. He was perfect. And because he was sinless and perfect, he was the only sacrifice that was able to take away sin forever. He's the only sacrifice that could be once and for all. 
This is further contrasted when the author makes a point in verse 27 that sacrifices were offered daily. The question of the Old Testament was how could sinful man pacify the holiness of God when God is displeased with mankind for their sin? What can we do? The solution was Day by day, we had to sacrifice. And so the point of the sacrifice had no abiding efficacy. It had to be repeated over and over and over and over again. But not Christ. Once and for all, perfect in His work. The picture is that the Word of Christ in offering Himself is permanent, perfect, and unrepeatable and definitive. Now, as we look at verse 28, it makes it clear that the law appoints mere men to be high priests, men who are imperfect, who are sinful, who are weak, and who are dying. However, the glorious message of the passage is that God gives eternal hope through the perfect work of the Son, who is our eternal high priest. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is a perfect high priest sworn by God to save his own, which leads us to our final point this morning. Jesus saves those who draw near to God through him. Let's look back at verse 25 for this last point. Please notice with me that it says, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God. Those who draw near to God is a clause that defines the partakers of his salvation. Christ is able to save to the uttermost But is everyone saved? No. The answer has to be no. If everyone was saved, we'd be universalists. In fact, we know that Jesus said, the gate is narrow and hard is the path that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Many people hear about Jesus, but does that mean they're saved? It is one thing to hear about Jesus. It's another thing to forsake everything you have and follow Him. The only way to salvation is through Jesus Christ. There is no other way. And I don't care what anybody says. I don't care who's writing a book that seems to indicate there is another way. And whether they're a Southern Baptist or not. It doesn't matter. There is one way. Through Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John chapter 5 verse 40, Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Only those who come to God through Jesus does He save. Jesus saves those who draw near to God through Him. That's what it says. Now we must understand that salvation is totally from God. But that does not mean that God saves us apart from our faith. What it does mean is that God saves us through faith. We are responsible for believing in Jesus Christ. However, we have a problem. And if you were paying attention earlier, you know what the problem is. We are unable to believe the gospel. We can't do it unless God grants us faith to do it. Faith is a gift from God. This verse says that Jesus saves those who draw near to God Jesus Himself says, no one can come to Me. No one. Not some people. Not one person. Not the really good people. No one can come to Me unless what? 
The Father who sent me draws them. No one can come unless the Father, God the Father, who sent me, God the Son, draws them. And I will raise him up on the last day. John chapter 6 verse 44. Then a few verses later he says this. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless no one can come and here comes the clause unless granted to him by the Father. In the Greek, draw near is what's known as a present continuous tense, which means it is a description of those who are being saved. So in other words, they continually draw near to God through Jesus Christ. It is not a one time I drew near to God. That's not what it is. Nor is it drawing near in order to gain some sort of benefit. Rather, it is a drawing near because of the recognition of our sinful condition and a drawing near through the blood of Jesus Christ for salvation and a continuation of drawing near to be sustained by the grace of God. One can only draw near through Jesus Christ because He is the only way to the Father. There is no other way. It doesn't matter if you live on some island and you never heard the name of Jesus Christ ever before. There is no way to the Father except through Jesus Christ. Jesus Himself said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you think there's another way, Jesus is a liar. There is no other way. Now notice we draw near to God. It is not drawing near to a church. It is not drawing near to religious requirements. It is not Drawing near to tradition. Now here's what we must understand. It is impossible to draw near to God. And at the same time cling to your sin. When we draw near, we turn from our sin because we understand with our, with our holiness, no one will, without holiness, no one's going to see God. And our only hope of holiness is Christ Jesus. Him in us. This is, this is an, not an outward requirement, but an inward change. It's an inward change. And the only thing that's going to get us there is to know Jesus saves those who draw near. Isn't it wonderful to know that God says draw near to me through my son? The holy God whom we cannot have access to in our sinful condition says, draw near to me through my son, who is your high priest, that I sent, and I will in no way cast you out. God promises that salvation is guaranteed for all who draw near to God through him. You don't have to clean up your life. You don't have to get things right. You come just as you are. And he guarantees salvation for all eternity if you come to him. That is the invitation this morning. Draw near. Do you know him? Have you drawn near?
Is Jesus Christ your Savior this morning? Is He your Savior? He will in no way cast you out. Perhaps this morning, once again, you heard the call. Our perfect high priest church saves to the uttermost. And that should excite us. And so not only is the invitation, do you know him? But the invitation is, what are you doing with that knowledge? Those of you that know Christ as your Savior, what are you doing with that? He saves to the uttermost. He saves that that person that you think is filthy and dirt. There's no way he could save them. Yes, he can. He saves to the uttermost. Are you sharing that with others? Here in a moment, we're going to sing a song. I'm going to be standing down front. Maybe you need to respond to this message. This morning, maybe it's for salvation. Maybe this morning you need to say, I need to place my faith in in Jesus Christ, knowing that he gave you that gift. Maybe this morning you need to say, Pastor, I just want want you to pray with me because I'm not excited about my salvation. I've not been sharing that. Maybe you want to pray on your own. Maybe you want to come forward for another reason. Maybe it's baptism. Maybe it's, it's uh, church membership. Maybe there's a, another reason you want to come forward. I'll be standing down front. Be ready to receive you this morning if you feel like you need to respond. Let's go ahead and close a prayer.